Good evening, everybody. Welcome into the channel one more time, Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m., where we are discussing Torah, the law of life. We are in part two. Can you believe it already in part two? This is my home studio. We are constantly upgrading it, trying to make it better, trying to make it a little bit brighter for you. Welcome in if you are here. Again, for the second time, click the like button, the subscribe button, the notification bell, get notified every time we go live as we go through this incredible content. I am really excited. I've got a plan uh, today to talk to you about the Torah in a way that you've never heard before. And I am going to probably and hopefully pique your interest into these ancient laws like you have never been interested before because studying the Bible is a life-giving adventure, but it's also an intellectual adventure. A lot of people say you got to let your brain fall out to study the Bible. I absolutely disagree. I believe that history, archaeology, science, grammar, um, sociology, psychology, and spirituality are all wrapped up into the examination of this incredible book. And it's my life's calling, and I'm proud to bring this content to you. So support the channel, and thanks for being here. And let me know in the comments, how you doing this Wednesday night? Let's do a quick review uh, from last time we were together. And uh, this is a uh, what we're going to call the deep dive review from the first part of this series. By the way, I can do picture in picture all over the place. Woo, 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 all over the place. Okay, we talked about this last time. Remember we said that there's a difference between God's law and American law. And that's because American law is focused on the individual, my rights, protection of the individual from the community, and then God's law, completely the opposite, my responsibilities and protection of the community from the individual. So I wanted to put this picture up here for you to kind of get it as to what we're looking at. You know, we have this highly individualized sense of community where we are the most important person on the planet, and it's all about my personal happiness, and it's all about my rights, and it's all about what I want, and it's all about my dreams, and that's just not how God is speaking to us in the Torah, which is why the Torah is confusing. This is why you will skip large sections of the first five books of the Bible when you're reading it, when you try to do that one year through the Bible plan. You get to Leviticus, you get to even halfway through Exodus, and you're like, no, I'm not doing that. And it doesn't make sense to me. And it seems actually very um, offensive. But, well, this is because, very simple, because we are highly individualized. We look at the world through the lens of how does this affect me? God looks at the lens of how does this affect we? And that's the big difference. And that's one of the most foundational principles for studying this content. Today, I'm going to look at some historical contextual insights from some ancient writings we're going to look at Noah's flood. Well, it was not Noah's flood. It was God's flood from a completely different perspective. We're going to also look at the first commandment and not the one that you think, not the one that's at the top of the list. No, it's actually the very first commandment that is referred to in the Ten Commandments. But I want you to do me a favor. I love interaction and I love your chatting. Why don't you see if you can guess what is the first commandment in the Bible? Because it's not... Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God said a lot of things before then. And so we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at a law that teaches us through that first commandment how we understand this ancient text. Now, disclosure. We are still in um, 
laying a foundation mode. We haven't even touched the laws. We're going to touch one today, but we really haven't touched the laws. And that's because I don't want to just vomit my interpretation of these laws onto you. My sincere hope is that the content that I give you on this channel helps you to enjoy, yes, enjoy, a lifelong adventure of reading the text with new eyes, with contextual insight, with historical analysis, with a sense of you're, you're reading God's word holistically as if to say, this is how and why and when he spoke to them for that reason in this way. And now I can draw from the text life-giving principles and promises and truth that will transform my life. Does that sound exciting? I, I, I'm excited to tell you about it. Just again, the review, God's law from last week is intended to create a community where God and people dwell together in safety. The, the law of God is not there to make sure that you are happy in your individuality. The law of God is there that you to make sure that you are safe, you are loved, you are accepted, you are blessed, you are, uh, uh, you are, um, what are you, not lonely? What's another word for not lonely? <laughs> you are in fellowship with people and with God, which is what you're made for, is what the two first, well, the two greatest commandments that Jesus talks about in the Gospels are, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, God in us and us in us. And we're going to look at that today. So without further ado, let's get into today's content on The Law of Life. The Deep Dive, Season 7 presents... Okay, so anytime that we look at the Bible, we have to remember that it wasn't written to us. It was written for us. Even Romans tells us this, and uh, we can go there. Is it Romans or is it 1 Corinthians? Um, it, I think it's Romans. Yeah, Romans 15. Uh, yeah, here we go. So Romans 15 says, and you will look here on the screen with me, for whatever was written in former days was written, what's the next word, everybody? For our instruction. That, that's a key word. It doesn't say for whatever was written in former days was written to us. No, it was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So a common nomenclature of this channel is the Bible is not written to you. It's written for you. So historical contextual analysis is huge. Are you ready to deep dive into Hittite culture, Bronze Age culture, ancient cultures and treaties and what is a vassal and what is a Severian and man, you're in for it today because that's what this content is about. Okay, I'm going to bring you to an ancient text that's not from the Bible. This is a text that was unearthed by archaeologists uh, in the last century and they have dated this text from an ancient writer to about 600 BC, and they've only got the term or the title for this, this text from what it seems to be. And here's what it is before I put it on the screen. It seems to be a prayer to the gods that no one understands. And so they've called this a prayer to any god. Now, think about this for a moment, because what this is is a 600 BC, and it could be actually written well before 600 BC. They just dated it to 600 BC. It could have been written 3000 BC. We don't know. But what we're going to hear in this text is the 
emptiness that people in the ancient world felt when they did not know God or the gods, as they understood them, and what those gods or God required of them. You, you have to remember that Scripture has this constant theme of light and darkness. Those who know the truth are in the light, and those who do not know the truth or reject the truth walk in darkness. That's what Jesus talked about in John's Gospel. But this passage from an ancient text is called A Prayer to Any God, and it really should, you know, kind of rip your heart out. Here's an ancient person writing out his thoughts to the God or gods. Look at it. May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. May my personal God's heart be reconciled. May my personal goddess's heart be reconciled. May my God and my goddess's heart be reconciled. And now I know you're just thinking, like, what are you talking about here? It gets worse. And the point is to show you how the ancient people viewed divinity viewed the gods or the goddesses without, without what? The biblical text that we now take for granted in our culture, really. And these people were walking in darkness. And so they're just making these appeals. There's a God or there's a goddess or there's someone out there. And look at the term reconcile. Reconcile is huge because he knows, he knows that he's at odds with this God or goddesses. And so I need reconciliation if I'm going to get uh, somewhere in life, this is the prayer of the ancient world. Okay, moving on. I have, uh, he says, I have perpetrated unwittingly an abomination to my God. I have unwittingly violated a taboo of my goddess. Oh, my Lord, many are my wrongs. Great are my sins. Oh, God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs. Great are my sins. Oh, goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. I do not know what wrong I have done. I do not know what sin I have committed. I do not know what abomination I per perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. The heart of sin in man, even in ancient cultures, is um, heartbreaking because they know something's wrong. The world is not right. And if you think about it, even secularists know there's not know something's wrong with the world. It's just, we're arguing about how to fix it and who has the truth on how to fix it. The uh, next page, check this out. When I wept, they would not draw near. When I would make a complaint, no one would listen. I am miserable, blindfolded. I cannot see. Turn towards me, merciful God, I implore you. I do homage to you, my goddess, as I keep groveling before you. Oh God, whoever you are, turn towards me. I implore you, O Lord, turn towards me, I implore you. Hear the repeated cry, this man is in agony. What does he want or she want? We don't know if it was a man or female who wrote this. He wants absolution. He wants to know that he's right with his creation. And by the way, everybody wants to know that. Everybody wants to fix the world, right? The famous Beatles song, uh, you, you all say you want a revolution, right? How, well, what does that look like? You know, we can't be going backwards. We got to go forward. What, even seculars, even pop stars know something's wrong with the world. Uh, Michael Jackson famously said, we need to make the world a better place. Take a look in the mirror, make that change. Okay. What is all that? It all has the same theme. Humanity knows something's wrong. Something needs to be fixed. Something's wrong deep inside of us. What is it? And without... Torah, and remember the word for Torah that I talked to you about last week, 
It's instruction. It's teaching. It's God speaking about what he's like and what he requires and what he wants from us and for us and what he wants to do with us. Without that, we're in limbo. We're in darkness. The ancient world was in darkness. Just another proof about this from some ancient documents. When we talk about the flood in the Bible, a lot of people want to be naysayers about the flood. They say, how can you believe in a God who flooded the earth? How can you believe in a book that talks about this old story, this ridiculous story about a flood that covers the whole earth? And the ironic thing is, is every culture that we have unearthed has some form of a flood story. Now, Wikipedia even has to admit this on their page, The Flood Myth. This is their Wikipedia entry called The Flood Myth. Now, I put myth in quotation marks because it's not a myth, right? We know that the flood story is true, but the flood myth is a terminology that Wikipedia uses because the Babylonians had a story about a massive flood that covered the earth. Uh, The Aztecs had a story about this. Plato had a story about this. Um, The Zapotecs, the Mixtecs. The Mayans in Central America have a story, have a traditional historical account of a flood that wiped out the earth. And this is most amazing. Over 120 um, cultures in Central and South America, did you know, and in North America, you might not know this, but you will now, (laughs) over 120 cultures have some writings or some artistic renderings that refer to an ancient flood myth that happened uh, in a certain time frame. They, they, they have dated their writings and their uh, artistic works, and, how, and they've interpreted those artistic works to show that most of these cultures date the time of, flow, no, uh, of the worldwide flood that they know about in their histories to around 100 years within the time that the Bible speaks about it in Noah's day. I mean, that's like... That's like huge, okay, because it totally eliminates the naysayers who like to say, oh, there's no such thing as a global flood. Don't be stupid. Move on beyond that. Well, explain then why all these cultures around the world on the other side of the world from where Noah was, because he was in what is now Turkey, um, the ancient Middle East. um, How do we explain that? How do all these cultures have the same message? But here's the difference. Here's the difference. The Aztecs and the Mystecs and the Zapotecs, these were the Central and, and uh, North American uh, natives, they believed that there was a global flood for the punishment of man's sins. Uh, Plato's story called Timaeus uh, depicts Zeus, the lead god in the Greek pantheon, ticked off at human beings because they are making too much noise. And this one is the funniest. The Epic of Gilgamesh, this is the Babylonian or Mesopotamian account of the ancient flood. This is funny. They teach through the Epic of Gilgamesh Gilgamesh, that the flood happened from the gods because humans were making too much noise. (laughs) Humans were upstairs causing some ruckus and the gods were like, hey, if you guys, if you kids don't quiet down up there, we're going to flood you out and drown you. That, that's the Mesopotamian view of the ancient flood. So here's where my point comes in. Only the Bible, and I stress this because you can research it yourself and find out. Only the Bible explains what mankind must do 
from the flood. Noah's flood happens in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and uh, 9. Um, only after those uh, passages do we get God's chosen people, Abraham and the family, uh, through which we get Moses, who writes this story, okay, to ancient Israelites in the Bronze Age on what this God who flooded the world wants us to do now. Oh, and by the way, he has made a promise never to do it again. And so the only ancient text that has hope, that has grace, that has mercy, and then also has the mercy of God's instruction to people on how to live as a result, the only one is the Torah, the ancient Hebrew scriptures, which brings me to this thought today that I want to make sure that you're getting. The contextual blessing of Torah in its ancient context is simply this, that we might know what the God wants, the God wants, and what he says to us, and what he has for us. This is the blessing of Torah. This is how you're supposed to read this text, because it is confusing, and it is ancient, and it's not written to you, and it addresses issues that we don't wrestle with today. Slavery has been abolished, or at least the acceptance of slavery. I know there's a lot of modern slaves in the world today, actually more slaves than ever before, according to uh, Project Rescue. But nobody's, nobody's passing laws to make sure it happens like they did in this country um, 160 years ago, okay? <clears throat> we are not dealing with the same contextual realities that these ancient people were. But the Torah speaks to that and then lets us understand that God wants us to know him. He wants us to know what he wants and he wants us to walk in those ways with him. Now, that means something that is of peculiar interest to some of our younger listeners. God wants you to know he doesn't want you to feel. God wants you to know he doesn't want you to feel. Israel's main problem was not that they didn't know what God wanted. Most often, it was that they just felt differently about it. They just didn't want to do it anymore. They knew God's laws. They rejected them. They followed their inclinations and their hearts and their desires. And they walked away from Torah and they ended up in exile for 70 years in Babylon. God raises up a prophet, Jeremiah, and he challenges them to stop, listen to this, following your heart. <laughs> this is what Jeremiah's main message is. I got four verses from you from Jeremiah Talking about this, Jeremiah 3.17, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, the, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own, what? Evil heart. Uh, Jeremiah 9.13, and the Lord says, because they've forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts, and have gone after the Baals, after the fathers, as their fathers taught them. Jeremiah 13.10, this evil people who refuse to hear my voice or my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. Jeremiah 18, 12. But they say that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and we will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Are you picking up a theme? <laughs> the, the follow your heart mantra is A, nothing new, is B, terribly destructive, is C, 
completely out of God's purview for how he wants you to live. There is a great chance that some of the greatest troubles of your life are based in your feelings, not in your knowings. Let me explain through a quote from Horace Walpole, very famous quote from a great uh, thinker in the, in the last century. The world is a tragedy to those who feel, but a comedy to those who think. In other words, if you're going to let, if you're going to let your feelings dominate your life, the world's a tragedy. You're just going to be going from bad feeling to bad feeling to bad feeling. And grownups understand this far more than young people, but feelings don't last. Feelings change. You can have the wrong food and, and your feelings are terrible. You can have the right food and suddenly your feelings turn around. You, you can just have just a notch of sugar that you, that, that your body's calling out for. And suddenly you're in a good mood again. And so the feelings are so irrational and God is absolutely clear that following them is a destructive lifestyle. It's the way to destroy who you are and what God wants for you. By the way, Jeremiah also says in Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. So the Bible is not pro-feelings. The Bible is anti-feelings. The Bible is pro-knowings. And this is the um, modern uh, uh, relevance of Torah. Ancient text, they didn't know. Ancient context, they didn't have any idea. There's this massive flood. The gods are punishing us. There's something wrong inside of me. I know I'm wrong. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know. Okay, that's ancient context. Okay, so here's the deal. Modern context is, I feel this way. I feel like doing this. I feel this in my heart. Every bad doctrine starts with the words, well, I just feel that God, and then fill in the blanks. Every terrible doctrine, every cult, every abominable idea about God begins with the phrase, well, I just feel that God would blank. And most of the times when we are saying, I feel that God would, we are just following our own hearts and we are fashioning a God that looks a lot like us. And so right there, we've just done this contextual, ancient historical analysis of why Torah is beneficial and brought it into, connected it into our feelings-oriented modern day context. We're going to do that on a regular basis and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. And I hope you're ready to do it as well. So... Shifting gears now, could call this chapter two of this content. Let's talk about covenant. Covenant is essential, and this is why it's essential, because Torah is a covenant. Did you know that? Torah is a covenant, and it's essential for this other reason. God speaks through covenant throughout the Bible. Now, let's take a look at what covenant means. It's from the Hebrew barith. Uh, the Greek translates it as diet. Thiki, <laughs> diathiki. The Latin translates it as pactum, from which we get the word pact, or, you know, this is where agreement contract comes from. And we've got to understand what is meant by covenant, because covenant is how God has chosen to relate to his people. Well, I got this definition from the theological word book of the Old Testament. It reads, a covenant is a treaty, an alliance of friendship between individuals, a pledge or agreement with obligations between a monarch and subjects, a constitution between God and man. That's what a covenant is. It's an agreement. And notice the word friendship. God wants to be, yes, friends with us. He wants to do life with us. God is individual. He's not human. He is individual in his being. Uh, God is a monarch. God is a ruler. We are the subjects. And God has, this is beautiful for all of us, written up covenantal promises so that we know how he has pledged himself 
to relate to it. This is, I cannot stress this enough, but God operates on the basis of promises. And the, and the word that we're going to use repeatedly in, in this study to refer to those promises is the word covenants. Now, covenants are nothing new. Uh, they were part of the ancient world between human parties uh, from the Bronze Age onward. And I'm going to talk about something uh, regarding that in just a moment. Uh, covenants are prominent in every period of salvation history. This is imperative that you understand. So we're going to do a quick deep dive into the eight major covenants of the Bible. Now, full disclosure, there is no consensus on all the covenants of the Bible. And not every one of these eight covenants has a direct specific biblical text referring to it saying, this is the covenant of blank. But by and large, theologians believe that these eight covenants are the foundation of God's relation to his creation. Okay? I rhymed and I didn't even plan for that. These are the foundation for God's relation to his creation. Eight covenants, and uh, they're going to be unpacked uh, together right now uh, in this content. Let's go to number one covenant in the Bible. It appears on Genesis chapter two. It's the works covenant. And the big idea is don't eat from the tree. Now, the key theme of that covenant is rule. Because what does God give to mankind? He gives rule. He gives authority. He gives dominion in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, actually, in Genesis chapter 1. Have authority. Subdue. Rule. He gives mankind the word. Don't eat from the tree. Rule the doctrine. He gives mankind a wife. He gives mankind responsibility. Mankind follows the God of this world. Surrenders. Rule to Satan. Satan now has rule of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of mine unbelievers. So the kingdoms of this world belong to Satan. So we have the covenantal, uh, the, 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 the breaking of the covenant of works leading to the disaster that is all around us. Okay, moving on, the covenant of grace is found in Genesis chapter 3. This is in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 17, I believe, when God creates coverings uh, for the man and the woman. And he, uh, let's see, where is it? Is it in 21, 20? Uh, yes. Genesis 3, there it is right there. Genesis 3, 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife uh, garments of skins and clothed them. So there we go. The covenant of grace is that God will do something to fix the problem. He, and he also says, to the woman that, you know, the, the serpent will bruise his heel, the offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head that is pointing to Christ. Grace is on the third uh, chapter of the Bible. It's in the third chapter of the Bible. God could have wiped out Adam and the wife and started over. He doesn't. He makes a promise. We're going to get this right. We're going to fix this. Uh, I'm committed to it. The, the next covenant is the covenant of Oh, by the way, the key word for the grace covenant is redemption. The next covenant is the covenant with nature that God makes with uh, Noah. So Noah gets a covenantal promise from God. I'm never going to flood the earth again. That's in Genesis chapter 9. And the key term or the key terminology there is restraint. We have a God who promises restraint in judgment. This is what Peter will talk about in his book when he says that the Lord is not slow in keeping uh, with his promises. He is not willing that any should perish. He is withholding judgment. He is not destroying the world as he rightly should. 
Okay, he is a God of restraint. He does not judge us according to how our deeds deserve. This is pointing to the cross because Christians, good news, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And those who are not in Christ Jesus, guess what? God is giving you time to repent right now. You are not getting away with it. You are being given grace and mercy and restraint from God so that he does not wipe you out. The next covenant, four. Abraham's covenant of circumcision, Genesis 12 and 17. God raises up a redemptive family that God is going to restore the nations back to himself. That Genesis chapter 12 talks about this, where God promises to Abraham, uh, and this is important. Let's put it up on the screen uh, real quickly here. And I am in the wrong Bible translation. I don't like that. The right translation, the ESV. It says, the Lord called Abraham, go out from your kindred, your father's house and land. I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great. You'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's going to be a blessing, a restoration through this Abrahamic covenant. By the way, Galatians talks about the fact that we have been blessed with every blessing of Abraham because of God's covenantal promise there to restore us. Uh, restore us to what Adam had in the garden with God. The law covenant is number five. It is found in Exodus chapter 19, and it is God is informing us how to live. And the theme of that covenant is reveal. God is revealing to us the way to live. Uh, the next covenant, number six, is the land covenant that is outlined or stipulated in Deuteronomy 30, where God will give them a land. And by the way, God also says, I will bring you back to this land if you disobey me, but you repent. So the land covenant is conditional upon your obedience. You obey. I'll keep you in it. You disobey. I'll, get, I'll cast you out of it. But if you repent, I'll bring you back into it. And the nation of Israel, this is so beautiful because in 1948, right, uh, Harry Truman, the president of the United States, uh, acknowledged the sovereignty of the state of Israel against the uh, desires of the UN, that horrible institution in New York City. And God had, had officially kept his promise even after centuries of Israel being expelled from the land uh, through the Roman Empire. Just amazing when you think about that these covenants, okay, these are true. These are certain. These are long-lasting. God does not have whims. He has promises. He has covenants. And it teaches us about who he is. Okay, the next covenant is the covenant with uh, the kingship. We talked about this in the Kings of Compromise a little bit, but we also mostly talked about this in our study through the life of David from what was that? Season four of the deep dive. Second Samuel 17, 7, 16. God chose David to rule eternally. And the key theme there is reign. Oh, by the way, the key theme of the land covenant is return. If you are listening only to the podcast and you can't see the video. Uh, then the final covenant in the, in the Bible, of course, we should be very familiar with this as Christians, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, a new covenant I will make with the house of Israel, not as the one I made with their fathers who willfully disobeyed me. I will write my laws on their hearts they, and I will cause them to walk in my statutes and they will obey me. They will all know me. No one will teach his neighbor. They will all know me. This is the new covenant that is consecrated, that is, um, uh, that is inaugurated through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the theme of that covenant is regeneration. So let's take a look. The themes of God's covenant, rule, redeem, restraint, restore, reveal, return, reign, regeneration. And all of those covenants, and this is the most exciting thing. Are you ready? All of those covenants are aimed at getting God and man back into harmony together. Why is that important? Because if you're going to read the Bible, read the Bible for what it's saying, not for what it's not saying. 
and, and, and read the Bible in a way that you come to terms with the fact that God is firm. He is certain. He is unchanging. He is, uh, he is truthful and he will not change. That is the bottom line basis of all these laws. That's the bottom line basis of knowing who he is. Now, what we have to understand is that Torah is referred to as the book of the covenant. This is why we're talking about all this. Exodus 24, 7 to 8. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. By the way, almost every covenant. Well, no, no, not almost every covenant does involve blood from the covenant of works that Adam blew. And he was and so blood had to be shed. Right. And he was going to die uh, to the blood of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. So every covenant is covered with blood or is part of the circumcision covenant, right? There's blood involved there. Anyway, the Torah is a book of the covenant. It is a covenantal promise with God. That's why I I bring this content to you. Now, another ancient uh, historical uh, contextual insight that we have to understand in order to read Torah rightly is to realize something about how God speaks through these covenants. There was a tremendous intellectual work that was produced in the 1950s by George Mendenhall of the University of Michigan, and he did research into the Bronze Age and into the Hittite culture to unearth something called the Caesarean Contract or the Caesarean Treaty, the Caesarean Covenant. Now, this is going to be a little bit intellectual. I hope you will bear with me. But what he came up with and through studying other ancient texts is that a Caesarean contract or treaty in the ancient world was made up of basically several things. Uh, Number one, you had a preamble. This is how we got here. You had a prologue. Here's our relationship. You had stipulations. Here's what we were going to agree to do. You had a rehearsal. Read this agreement again and again. You had witnesses. Who has witnessed this agreement? You had blessing and cursings. This is what happens as a result of you following through with the agreement. So those six things are part of what George Mendenhall discovered in 1955 and produced a uh, a, a writing about this. It wasn't a book. It was a writing. Uh, and it was submitted into theological journals. This Caesarian treaty from Hittite origins around 1400 to 1200 BC. And what it was, it was a treaty that was written out between a sovereign overlord and an inferior vassal. That's why we get the term Caesarian. Caesarian is the word for uh, uh, sovereign. Now, why does that matter? is because this is how the ancient people communicated and related to each other. This is how sovereigns related to their subjects. (laughs) Now, here's the cool thing. Guess what? That's how God relates to Israel. He absolutely outlines uh, the prologue and preamble right there in Exodus 20, verse 1. And the Lord, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord. Here's who I am. Here's who you are. You are redeemed slaves. I brought you out. Of the land of Egypt, those are the prologues and preamp. That's the prologue and preamble of God's covenantal agreement with Israel. The stipulations, Exodus 20, verse 3, and following, you shall know other guys before me. Uh, the rehearsal and witness of the covenant, Exodus 24, 7. He took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people. They said, we will do all this stuff. Uh, bless, blessings and cursings are outlined in Gen- uh, Deuteronomy 28. If you faithfully obey, obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, I command you today, the Lord will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And he goes on and on and on for several, several, several verses about the blessings and the cursings that are requisite with this covenant. Now, I can tell what you're saying to me right now. 
Here's what you're saying. Who cares? Are you kidding me? Why are you doing this to me? I thought this was going to be biblical instruction. Here's why this matters. It matters because God chose to speak to humans in the Torah in the way that they understood. This was not groundbreaking material. This was not groundbreaking speech. So what you have to understand is the Torah is God's grace to, listen, lower himself in communication to how we relate to each other so that we might know him. I'm emphasizing this because, again, the Torah is a gift of God's grace. The law is a gift of God's grace. He brings us out of darkness and shows us what he wants. He bends down to our level. Every parent gets this. When you want to communicate to a toddler, what do you do? You get down on their level. You get eye, eye to eye with them. You speak. And then how do you speak to them? Do you speak to them in intellectual terms? No. You speak to them about what they're doing and what did we do naughty and what did we need to do instead. You don't talk to another, another adult like that, but you, you bend down your language to communicate to someone that you love. This is why Torah is so beautiful, and we have to understand it in this ancient contextual context. God has chosen, God has chosen to communicate to us in this ancient context in a way that ancient contexts communicated to themselves. It teaches about who he is. This is so important to understanding this study. And now we're just learning about Torah. We're learning about God. We're, we're communicating. We're learning about who this God is is in a way that shapes our relationship to him. So wrapping this kind of idea up, our God is a eternal covenant God. He remains the same. His character is unchanged. His promises are trustworthy. His word is reliable. His truth is demonstrably beneficial. Okay, I think I have time, and let me know if I've gone too long. <laughs> no, don't do that to discuss something that I told you in the beginning we would get to. And we're going to talk about the Sabbath. Because the law of the Sabbath is actually the first commandment that deals with the first commandment. <laughs> now, some people are going to cry heresy here. They're going to cry, that's not theologically accurate. I'm going to show you why I believe the Sabbath is the primary commandment in the Big Ten. And I'm going to show you how God communicates this law to us so that we live it in a way that causes us to relate to him more appropriately. Now, what you have to understand about the Sabbath is the Sabbath is the bridge commandment. Let's first talk about it. Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner with the, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's the commandment. Now the commandment is essential to understanding our relationship toward God and toward each other. And the reason why is because this commandment addresses, even though it's number four on the list of the Big Ten, it addresses the first commandment. You say, what? How does, it, how does the Sabbath address the idea that you shall have no other gods before me? Okay, you're, you've mistaken the first commandment. Let's take a look at the first commandment in the Bible. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
First command to man. What? Work. Work, guard, protect, keep, cultivate. That garden. <laughs> so that puts to rest the old lie of what's the oldest profession. You know what the oldest profession in the world is? Landscaping. <laughs> okay, gardening. That's the first commandment. Work. God wants us to work. God wants us to engage creation with him. Now we know, Genesis 3, it's right there on the screen, the curse, the ground is cursed now because of sin. And it will produce thorns and thistles, and we will, by the sweat of our brow, eat bread. So work is cursed because of sin. Work is not a curse. Work is cursed. Then God promises, uh, then God sends mankind out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. And because work is cursed, we curse each other. Right? Raise your hand. No, don't really do this, but raise your hand in your mind if you've ever cursed somebody out at the job. If you ever curse somebody out because they're doing the same job that you're, that you're doing and you're not paid as well as them or they get noticed and you don't get noticed, raise your hand in your head if you've ever been jealous of somebody else's advancement, jealous of somebody else's productivity, jealous of somebody else's talents. This is the curd. This is part of the brokenness of humanity that God has entered into with us. So when God gives his 10, right in the middle of the commandments is the bridge commandment referring to the Sabbath. Here's the top 10, uh, uh, the top 10, of course, the 10 commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols. You shall not take the name of your God in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. Now, we need to understand that that is the God and us commands. That is the God and us commands. Those are the relationship with, uh, with God uh, ordinances that we must follow or ancient Israel must follow. Now, let's take a look at the others here. I'm going to slide myself over to the top left. You shall not, you shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not but fear, bear false witness against your neighbors. You shall not covet. Those I call the us and us commandments. So God and us commandments and us and us commandments. But what's right in the middle? The bridge commandment is keep the Sabbath day. I want to show you why this is the bridge commandment in, uh, in this list of commandments. First off, we learn to keep the Sabbath. How? By remembering the Sabbath day. What, what, what are you talking about? The Sabbath day and remembering. Why, why does this command start with um, remember? Well, very simple. Do you know why? Because in Genesis 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and a host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested on it uh, from all his work that he had done in creation. We are being asked in the command of the Sabbath to act like God. Now, this is important. Back to the text of the Sabbath commandment. Number one, we see remembrance. So this is part of entering into relationship with God. Number two, total participation within the community. What does he say? You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, even the stranger. No work on the Sabbath. This is you could call this the first employment restriction, the first law against abusive employment uh, activity. <laughs> it's amazing how beautiful the Bible is. Do you know how much of our political discourse and our political arguing is wrapped up in employers and employees, in the rich, if you will, and the poor, in the Slave and free, to speak in New Testament terms, the, the bond servant and the master. That is 
what, 70% of our political disagreement? How should employers treat their employees? And right here, as the bridge commandment, God is setting a standard to say, everyone gets the day off. Because if God did not include everyone in this commandment, you can imagine that people would say, well, you know, only I have to take the day off. Now you guys all have to work and make up for my lack of work. Whoa, hey, stop. Everybody, God says, takes the day off. Okay, so we enter into uh, participation into God's activity. We enter into this communally together with each other. There's something else that we need to see about this commandment, and it is only one of two commandments that have admonitions, not prohibitions, right? Every other commandment is thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. This is the one of two where God actually just says, I want you to do this. This is an admonition, not a prohibition. Where, by the way, what's the other commandment? It's the very next one. Honor your father and mother uh, and you know, respect them. That is another admonition. So there's only two commandments in the top 10 that are admonitions, and this is the, the first one. And we are called to remember this. And it all leads to an important discussion about the fact that what we are doing in this commandment is we are entering into relationship with God, acting like him, resting with him. And then from that rest on equal footing with each other, treating each other uh, um, well, treating each other justly, treating each other rightly because we have learned to relate to God in that rest. So ultimately, what we are looking at in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Torah is a continual invitation of God to say, hey, come on in and do this with me. Rest, rest with me. Be a kind of my community. Get that relationship with me right. I'm first, no other idols, uh, no gods, no, uh, no idols, no name in vain. Now rest with me. And then treat your parents right. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. D do you understand how important this is? How God is communicating the Torah? Again, this is foundational stuff. We're not discussing individual laws just yet, but I feel like these two first episodes of this content had to lay a foundation so that we read Torah rightly because, as I said earlier, and I want to say it again, I am not interested in you just listening to me tell you my interpretation of these laws. I am interested in teaching a man to fish. You can read these laws now. You can read the New Old Testament and you can start to glean through God's character, through his invitation into community with him, into community with each other. That was last week. And then into the participation of his activity, starting with Sabbath, starting with how we cultivate the earth. We work six days and we rest seven. Why? Because that's what God does. And we do this all together. And we, we do this all together because we are all equal before God. And he wants us to treat each other fairly and justly. And I know some of you, and I, I'll just go into this little just this little side tangent for a second. I understand in the New Testament, the laws of the Sabbath are annulled because Paul says that there is no law of the Sabbath. One day is more holy than the other. No, in the new covenant, and we can explain that in another, in another day. I, I will maybe do that someday in the future on this, on this, uh, 
on this season. But for right now, all I really want to do is just kind of give you the ancient historical context of what God is doing and communicating through this commandment. And what he is communicating is, I am inviting you into an invitation into my character, into my activity, and into my purposes. That is how we are going to read these laws. And every single one, even the crazy ones, are asking us to do that. Be like me, God is saying. And to an ancient context, which was full of brutality and the degradation of the young and the old and the widow and the stranger, God is speaking in the ways that the ancient culture can understand and drawing them slowly at the, on their level. You know, one theologian says it's baby talk. That's what the Bible is. It's baby talk. It's when, when you talk to a baby, you say, oh, you're a baby. I love you. You're so cute. Do, do, do. That's baby talk. You don't talk to adults like that. This is what God is doing in the Bible. He is baby talking us. He is leading us on our level into participation, into his character, into his activity, into his purposes. And when we get to know that, it changes the world. When we start acting like him. Support the channel. That's the show today. Support the channel if you want to. Know that we support Project Rescue and American Bob Society. Like, share, and subscribe to the channel. And again, bad news, everybody. The deep dive takes a break for a few weeks. Three-week break. Are you going to make it? Uh, but we will be sending you video and do producing video from Israel. I am taking off next week to the Holy Land. Can't wait to bring you some content on location from the place where all this comes from. <laughs> it's going to be so exciting. And uh, we will get that content into your hands. So make sure if you aren't already liking the video, subscribing to the channel, hitting the notification bell. The notification bell helps this guy, your smart device, let you know when we're live so that you never miss a release. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for being here. And I will see you soon once again for Deep Dive, The Law of Life Torah Study Part 3. God bless you.